following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning. Great to see all of you. I um, to settle the earlier dispute, think that maybe, just maybe, fall begins when Barry wears flannel on a Sunday. How about that? Uh, I may have started a little early this year. So if you're new around here, we're so thrilled you're with us. Thank you to all of you who braved the rain and came out this morning. And good morning to all of you who are safe and dry at home that have joined us online. We're so glad that you're here. If you have your Bible, grab it and let's go to Revelation chapter two. This morning we'll be in Revelation, that strange and beautiful book at the end of our Bibles, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter two. On a cool spring day, around the year 155 AD, an old bishop was led out before a giant crowd assembled in an arena. The bishop Polycarp. And as Polycarp was led into the arena, he heard a voice from heaven saying to him, take courage, Polycarp, and play the man. He was led out into the arena, and he was uh, commanded by the magistrate to declare Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. To spare your life, all you must do is declare Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp said, I will not do what you advised me to do. The magistrate indignantly responded back to Polycarp and, and said, this is your opportunity to spare your life. Cursed, curse Christ and live. And Polycarp said, 86 years I've served him and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The magistrate replied, don't you realize that that I can have you thrown to the wild beast? Polycarp said, call them. He said, I could have you burned on the pyre of flames. And Polycarp replied and said, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. For you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and the everlasting punishment that is laid up for the ungodly but why do you delay? Come, do what you will. And then in this account, we read, straightway then they set about him the material prepared for the pyre. And when they were about to nail him to it, to nail him in place, to burn him on the pyre, he said also, leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without any security that you desire from the nails. And then as they began to light the wood, he prayed and he said, Father, I bless thee because thou hast deemed me worthy of this day and hour to take my part in the number of the martyrs, in the cup of thy Christ. May I be received in thy presence this day as a rich an acceptable sacrifice. And his body was consumed by the flames. Such remarkable courage in the face of suffering. 
that begs the question for us, where do you find that kind of courage in the face of suffering? Well, that's the question that we're going to ask and answer today. As we look here at the words of Jesus to the suffering church in the city of Smyrna. We are in the second week of this sermon series that we're calling This Beautiful Mess, where we're just acknowledging the reality that all of us know, that all of us have experienced in some way or another, that the church is beautiful, but she's messy. That that likely all of us in some way have experienced the church at all her beautiful best, that we've experienced the, 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 the sense of connectedness and belonging that we experience in the body of Christ, that we've experienced the church at her best serving the needs of the vulnerable and the weak, the the marginalized, the broken. That we've experienced the church at her best in those moments that we gather together where our heart is beating out of our chest as we engage together in passionate worship. And yet we've all likely experienced the messy part of church, the pain, the disappointment, The church is beautiful, but she's messy. And over the course of these weeks, we're studying the the words of Jesus to these seven churches scattered around the ancient Mediterranean world. Churches that were a lot like ours. Churches that were beautiful, but messy. And in each of these words of Jesus, he offers them words of of commendation, but then for most of them, he offers them a word of challenge and rebuke. This morning, we're looking at one of only two of these churches that that didn't get any words of challenge or rebuke. They got only words of commendation, of encouragement, of hope, because Jesus is speaking to the suffering church at Smyrna. Smyrna is about 35 miles away from Ephesus, which we looked at last week. These seven churches kind of make a circuit, beginning at Ephesus, going then to Smyrna, about 35 miles away. It's a thriving metropolitan city in the ancient world, and the only one of these seven ancient churches that actually the city still exists today. It's the city of Izmir in Turkey. It's a a church that was um, known for its allegiance to the Roman Empire, In fact, because of their loyalty to Rome, this this city was allowed to build the first uh, temple to Tiberius Caesar, the Caesar during the time of Jesus when he was killed. This is a church that is um, uh, at the heart of the Roman Empire in that part of the world. And they were living, this church is living in a city that is large and prosperous, and yet they are small and they are poor. And they are suffering persecution because they live in an empire that is doing everything it can to pull them apart. In the ancient world, the, the book of Revelation addresses these churches that find themselves on the one hand faced with the very real threat of persecution. They were threatened with persecution because they were bold enough to say, Jesu Curios, Jesus is Lord. So unwilling to say Kaiser Curios, that Caesar is Lord because of their devotion, their allegiance to Jesus. And yet what the empire said to them is, it's fine for you to worship Jesus as long as you worship the emperor too. And so on the one hand, they faced the threat of persecution. On the other hand, they faced the temptation of compromise to give their allegiance to the empire. They were surrounded by an empire that was doing everything it could to pull them apart and they were yet seeking the way of faithfulness. And Jesus speaks to them and offers them words that enable them to find courage in the face of their suffering. Well, I believe the first thing that we see as we look at these words is they found courage in the face of suffering by remembering who he is. 
by remembering who Jesus is. Look with me, beginning in verse eight. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. Each of these letters begins with a reference to who Jesus is because in order for them to be faithful, in order for them to endure, to find courage in the face of suffering, they need to remember who Jesus is. And this is in a very important sense what the whole book of Revelation is intended to do. Right? The opening words of this book are the revelation of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the liberating king, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Opening words of the book that tell us really what it is in the Greek, it's apocalypsis Jesu Christu, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, we hear the word apocalypse and we think end times and we think battle of Armageddon, we think uh, end of the world as we know it, right? The, the apocalypse, scary. But, but the word apocalypse literally means unveiling, right? It's like if we went to a to a wedding together. We're sitting in the, in the congregation as the bride comes down the aisle and then we reach that moment where the, 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 the veil is lifted and I lean over to you and say, here comes the apocalypse, right? <laughs> the unveiling. And we find right at the beginning of this book, this is the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ to remind these churches in the midst of empire that is trying to pull them apart to remind them who he is. Is. And here, the church of Smyrna is reminded he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the highest and the greatest. The empire wants you to say, Kaiser Kurios, but you can't because there's only one Lord and his name is Jesus. And he is Lord even in our suffering. But in our suffering, we can be reminded that he is the first and the last, that suffering will not have the final word. He is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. Here, Jesus is reminding them who he is, reminding them of the reality of the resurrection, of his triumph over death. Uh, I heard a, a pastor named J.D. Greer use a, what I thought was a great illustration to talk about the way in which the hope of the resurrection sustains us through difficult times. He, he illustrated it talking about the TV show 24. You guys remember this, right? It's like 20 years ago now. It's Jack Bauer, special agent. This was the first show that Kim and I ever binge watched, right? That um, we were living in Wheaton, Illinois. I was working on my PhD. We had one kid at the time. He was a toddler. And we would put Will to bed and then we would go down in the basement and we would binge watch the show. Now, if you remember back in those days, we didn't have Netflix to binge watch with, right? We were watching it on DVD. And so each disc had four episodes, right? And we would go down in the basement after we put Will to bed and we would watch four episodes. Each, each episode, an hour, right, in real time of this 24-hour season. And we would watch those four episodes and each one ends with a cliffhanger. What's gonna happen next, right? And so, we, Blockbuster, closed at like 11 o'clock and it would be like 10.46 and I'm like, I know that I can make it there and get the disc before they lock the door, right? So I would rush back home and we would put the disc in and watch at least the next episode, right? Because we were, we were so sort of drawn into the drama of the story. Well, J.D. Greer talks about the fact that he and his wife, similar experience when they were watching the show um, and one weekend, they actually went away, they rented a house at the beach but they never made it to the beach, because they spent the whole weekend binge-watching season three of 24. But he says, here's the deal. He says, there's this moment in season three. I'm sorry, it's a 
spoiler alert, it's been 20 years, okay? I can get away with this. Um, He says there's this moment in season three as you're coming to the end of the season where Jack Bauer dies, right? And that's like end of story, right? Show's over. The hero is dead, But he said, here's the thing. I had already bought the DVDs for season four and his picture is right there on the cover, right? (laughs) So when things are at their worst, when when it's at its darkest, when you think the hero is dead, you know I've seen his picture on the cover. He's coming back, right? (laughs) And that is true for us in our moments of struggle, in our moments when things are at their worst, we remember his picture's on the box. He has triumphed over death. Remember, Jesus says, I am the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. And you find courage in the face of your suffering by remembering who I am. And I'm with you. Second, I think we find courage in the face of suffering by remembering where he has been. Remembering where Jesus has been. Look with me in verse nine. Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. If you have a physical copy of your Bible with you, I wanna just encourage you to circle those two little words, I know. Show up twice in this verse, I know. I think those two little words are remarkably powerful. And they're remarkably powerful in a a couple of different ways. First, think about this. Imagine that you're a part of this little fledgling church in Smyrna. And you show up there on a Sunday morning gathered with a relatively small group of of other believers. You're living through this moment when the the church is struggling, when when it is small and it is poor and it is being persecuted. You look around and you realize that there's empty seats. Some who aren't there because they've walked away. It was just too much, it was just too hard and they just walked away. Others who aren't there because they've been arrested, thrown into prison, beaten, some even killed. And you realize that you took a risk just to show up to that gathering on that morning. And then somebody stands up in front of the congregation and begins to unroll a scroll and read these words from Jesus himself to you, to your congregation. And I have to imagine that that person who was standing before that congregation reading those words that got a big lump in his throat and tears in his eyes when he got to those two little words. I know your affliction. I know your poverty. I know the slander that you're facing. This is what our own beloved Bust Fanning in his remarkable commentary on Revelation calls Christ's intimate knowledge of the church's condition. Isn't it good to know that Christ has intimate knowledge of the church's condition? Christ has intimate 
knowledge of your condition. This Christ who reigns over the, the, cos, the whole cosmos knows intimately, is intimately attentive to the details of your life. He says, I know. I know what you're going through. Friends, he knows whatever it is that you're going through. He sees you. He knows you. But there's another aspect of the significance of this little phrase, I know. And that is, I've been there. I, 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 uh, I buried my dad on Good Friday, 1999. We had his funeral. And um, there's a lot about that day that I don't remember in detail, I remember the, the feelings, I remember the experience, but, but there's just some sketchy memories of the day itself. I was 26 years old, Good Friday. We buried my dad. And, uh, and yet there's this one moment that stands out in my mind with crystal clarity that uh, after the service was over, my friend Tim, one of my dearest friends in seminary, my friend Tim just came up and embraced me. And then he looked deep in my eyes and he just said, I am so sorry. And there was nothing particularly poignant, particularly profound about those words, right? Very simple expression, I'm so sorry. But what made those words so powerful for me, what, what made that moment stick in my mind and my heart for all these years is that I knew that years before, Tim had buried his dad that he knew what it was like to bury a father that brought such poignancy to his words, I am so sorry, I've been there. And this is what Jesus is saying to the suffering church of Smyrna, I know your affliction, I know your poverty, I know your slander, I know because I too was afflicted, I too lived in poverty, I too suffered slander, I know. Whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is that you're going through, he knows. He's been there. And this, friends, is the heart of the Christian story that our God came into this world and entered into our suffering, took our suffering upon himself, endured a suffering greater than we can possibly imagine and triumphed over it so that we could have a hope beyond it. This is the heart of our story. I know they could find courage in the face of their suffering by remembering where he had been, that he'd been where they are. Now, it's very important for me to just offer a brief comment on this little phrase that's used here, referring to the Jewish people of their day as the synagogue of Satan. Tragically, in the course of Christian history, this little phrase has been used to justify anti-Semitism. It's been used as though what Jesus is saying here is that all the Jews are the synagogue of Satan, and this is not what's going on here. That it's important to recognize that what's happening in Smyrna at this time, in this day, is that, um, again, everyone was expected to offer worship to the emperor, to, to worship Caesar, Kaiser Curios. The only ones who got an exception to that, who, who didn't get persecuted by the empire despite their unwillingness to worship Caesar, were the Jewish people. 
because the Jewish people were an ancient people, were an ethnic people, and the Roman Empire knew that they really weren't much of a threat. And then along comes this Jesus movement, born out of Judaism, and claiming that Jesus was the true Lord and Israel's true Messiah. And what was happening is that as the church, as the Christians began to be persecuted for their claim that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, the Jewish people of their day were quick to say, they're not us, and to point out who they were. And so what was happening in Smyrna is some of the pressure, some of the persecution that these Christians were facing was because of the people that were there in the synagogue saying, they're not with us. And that's what's being alluded to here. But there's nothing anywhere in the Christian story, in the Christian Bible, that justifies any kind of sentiment of anti-Semitism. Our story is that God took on flesh as a Jewish man, and that every book that we have in the Bible, almost without exception, and we're not even sure about that, is written by a Jewish man. That there is nothing anywhere in the Bible that justifies the sentiment of anti-Semitism, and tragically... It's part of the church's history at points along the way, but that we have to acknowledge is wrong and is a blight on our history in that regard. Make sense? I feel like it's important just to acknowledge the way in which this little phrase has tragically been twisted by some in the past. So back to the main thrust of the sermon, how do we find courage in the face of suffering? We remember who he is. We remember where he's been. And then finally, we remember what's ahead. Look with me at verse 10. Verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. The first thing that Jesus says to them is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And friends, I think that this admonition of Jesus that we find here and that we find multiple places through the remainder of the Bible is a very timely word for the church in America today. As we find ourselves living in a moment surrounded by an empire that's trying to do everything it can to pull us apart to be reminded, the word of Jesus to us is do not be afraid. And it's important that we remember that you have politicians and pundits on both ends of the political spectrum who are peddling in fear. It's what generates advertising revenue. It's what drives up post clicks. It's what fuels the partisan animosity that we experience all around us. And it's what drives people out to, to vote. But we need to be reminded that while politicians and pundits peddle in fear, Jesus does not. And his word to us as his people today is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. To the church of Smyrna, he says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. It's bad and it's, it's gonna get worse. It's gonna be difficult. He says, you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now we hear that and we kind of go, 10 days, week and a half, that's not so bad, right? That's not what actually is happening here. Um, we need to be reminded that, that the genre of the book of Revelation is, is filled with uh, all kinds of symbolism and imagery. And often, when we see numbers in the book of Revelation, those numbers function more like adjectives than they do like 
concrete count on your fingers, right? That a number has some kind of symbolic significance. And so when Jesus says here, 10 days you will suffer, I think what's being communicated is that this suffering represents a definite but limited period of time. You're gonna suffer. And you're gonna suffer from a definite but limited period of time. Your suffering has an end date. I don't know about you, but I get a little freaked out by expiration dates, right? <laughs> like, uh, like if the milk is in the fridge and it's been there for a while and it's getting close to that, like if it's a couple of days away from the expiration date, I don't mean past it, I mean on this side of it. I'm already getting nervous and not quite sure I wanna have anything to do with it. I just get a little bit weird, a little bit freaked out by expiration dates. And, and somehow I've managed to pass this on to my daughter. Like she's heightened about it even more than I am. She's always looking at the expiration date. My mother, on the other hand, is just completely different, right? She, she grew up the child of people that had lived through the depression, right? She, it's three days past the expiration date on the milk. She's like, here, let me try it. Perfectly fine, right? I get a little freaked out by expiration dates. But isn't it good to know that suffering has an expiration date. There's coming a day. It's a definite but limited period of time. And to be reminded the reality that suffering doesn't last forever. And then, Jesus says, I will give you life as the victor's crown. This image of the crown here, don't, don't think um, like gold crown with the, uh, jewels on it. Think like a, a wreath. This was the kind of crown that would be given to a runner at the end of a race. If you have run the race, if you have endured and you have been the victor, you've won the race, you come to the other side and you get the victor's crown. And Jesus says, if you run with endurance, if you run faithfully, if you, if you persevere, that at the end, I will give you the victor's crown and the victor's crown I will give you will be life. Real life, full life, joy-filled life, succulent life, forever life, eternal life. This is the gift that I will give you as your victory. It's the call to endure by looking to what lies ahead. And he says in verse 11, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. You see, Polycarp knew that there was life beyond those momentary flames and that that life that was held up for him was safe and secure, was a place that no harm could befall him, that, that no suffering could ever touch him. A life without affliction, without poverty, without slander. And he found courage in the face of his suffering by remembering who Jesus is, by remembering where Jesus had been, and by remembering what lay ahead. Now, what I didn't mention to you at the beginning when I told you about Polycarp is he was actually a disciple of the Apostle John. That, that when Polycarp was a young man, that, that John was his mentor that he was a disciple of the Apostle John, who many believe wrote the book of Revelation, that, that Polycarp would have probably been in his early 20s when John wrote these words of Jesus to the church at Smyrna. And that in his old age, all those years later, he would become the bishop of that church. Polycarp, bishop of Smyrna. 
who found remarkable courage in the face of suffering by remembering who Jesus was, the first and the last, the one who conquered death, by remembering where Jesus had been, what it means when Jesus says, I know your affliction, your poverty, your slander. And by remembering what lay ahead, the victor's crown of life. Let those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ because of who he is and what he has done and the hope that he has secured on our behalf that enables us to face whatever comes our way. And God, I pray for any who are here this morning who are in a a season of suffering, that today they might find courage in these words from Jesus, that you would minister to their hearts in these moments of response. And God, for any who are here that have never trusted in Christ and therefore are uncertain about their hope for the future, that today might be the day that they would yield to you, that they would trust in Jesus and what he has done on their behalf. Embracing the gift of forgiveness and the hope of life eternal. And so now, Lord, we pause before you to reflect on our hearts, reflect on our lives before we come to these elements of communion to remember. We examine ourselves to see if there is anything that we need to name before you this morning before we partake. So I give you this time of quiet reflection now. And our Father, we thank you for the grace that you lavish upon us in the Lord Jesus. That it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this not of ourselves is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.